we're going to do today is uh, we've been in a series uh, going through the book of Acts, and uh, we, I wanted to uh, kind of break from that today. As I was getting ready for that, we were going to be jumping into Acts chapter 17, which we will be jumping back into next week. Um, as I was preparing for that and studying for that and kind of pretty much finalizing what I, what I, what I thought I was going to be teaching on, uh, I kind of had a pretty strong inclination in my heart to, to throw that out, or at least to wait for next week to do it and to teach on something else. So I wanted to teach today kind of on the theme, obviously, of, of fatherhood, um, but in particular, the idea of God as father. Uh, the title that I want to uh, give my message this morning, and uh, we'll be looking at a lot of different passages and verses, so I actually won't start off with one like we oftentimes do. Um, we'll be looking at lots of passages and kind of following a theme. So think about today more as a theme study, looking at the subject of the fatherhood of God. So I'm going to call today Reimagining um, God as Father. So before I would jump in, I want to just ask the question, why even pause to kind of recalibrate and think about this? Um, I think for a number of reasons, but one of the top foremost ones is to just consider the fact that many times when we think about God, we have false perceptions. When we think about God, we have ideas about God that oftentimes are not consistent. So what I want to do first is I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin to jump in and take a look at this thought. So if you guys want, you can, uh, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you Bible. So anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to do that. And then I'll pray, and then uh, we'll get to work. So keep your hands up while we pray. It's okay. It's all right. God will still hear your prayer. Um, Let me pray, and we'll jump in. God, thank you for uh, meeting us here. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, God, for your healing touch that you give and you bring. God, thank you for being a father to us. God, whatever types of emotions or feelings or maybe even anger that name Father may bring up in our hearts, uh, God, I pray that you would help us to take every thought captive and to flush out any false notion, false ideas, false definitions that we've attributed to that name uh, that get passed on or projected upon you. And God, I pray that you would allow your scripture to uh, refuel our hearts and understanding and our affection for who you are as God our Father. And so we commit this morning in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So I was thinking before we jump in, um, before we begin to look at the subject of uh, God as Father and begin to reimagine what that looks like, I want to start by actually imagining for you to imagine if you were Bart Simpson or, or, or Lisa, right? You can choose. So I did a little slide here. Um, and uh, off in the distance there, you have their uh, amazingly godly next door neighbor, a guy named uh, Ned Flanders. So imagine if you were Bart Simpson or Lisa. And uh, someone said to you, Ned Flanders, and he's like, hey, um, God is like your father. So imagine if you're them in their shoes and your upbringing, and this is your dad. Your dad is Homer Simpson. So when you begin to think about kind of these parallels between God, this heavenly father, and God, your earthly father, when someone says God is like your father, you, you, get, you get the idea where I'm going with this. So when we use language like God is like a father, God is a father, uh, we have to wrestle with the fact that for some of us, that's a painful thought. For some of us, that's actually uh, terrifying. For some of us, it's kind of a joke. For some of us, we think of the idea of God as like father as something that we stumble over, we trip over that. Because we associate God as father with our, he- our earthly father. Uh, whether he was there, uh, present, and yet uh, maybe abusive or uh, terrifying and not a very kind person to be around, 
or he was absent, just not there. Or for some reason, uh, you just had a father that is, was, was taken at a young age and, and you, did, you grew up not having a father, not knowing that sense of, of affection or compassion or com- companionship that you would envision that a father would, would be to you. So I don't know where you're at kind of on a spectrum, but I, my, I would venture to guess that for many of us, when we think of that concept of God as father, God as a father, um, we're all over the board on that. So realizing that, what I want to try to do, this is one of the beautiful elements of Scripture, is that Scripture re-anchors our understanding and reinforms and, again, reintroduces us and allows us to, here's the word, to reimagine what God is truly like. That's what Scripture does. At the same time, it challenges, it confronts um, our false ideas, the characters that we have about who God is or what God is like or what type of a joke God is or what type of a terror God is. It reinforms our understanding as to who God is. So what I want to do this morning is I want, just want to look at a handful of ways in which Scripture kind of uh, flushes out false notions and reintroduces us uh, and allows us to kind of reimagine a fresh understanding of who God is. Now, before we do that, I want to jump in to just kind of introduce Jesus and the way that Jesus talked about God. Because Jesus, as you obviously know, um, is God's son, as we would use the language to describe him. But Jesus was also a prophet. Jesus came and he preached about God. He taught about God. And uh, so in a lot of ways, Jesus kind of fit this paradigmatic uh, image of a prophet. Jesus would confront the powers and the authorities that would be. And Jesus, at the same time, would speak forth uh, uh, truth and words and uh, prophetic utterances. This is what Jesus would do. And the language that Jesus uh, employed and used was radically different than anything that you would have in the Old Testament. So let me give you an example of this. So throughout the Old Testament, what we would you know, recognize is like Genesis all the way through Malachi, um, that there's no relation that you would describe or see God being described as a father. You would see Israel being described as a son, so the implication is that God must be the father. If Israel's my son, then you would, uh, by way of implication, derive the fact that God must be father. But when you have prophets, when the prophets came on the scene, and they would talk about God, and they would talk about what God was going to do for Israel, or uh, remind the people of Israel who they were and who God was in their context, rarely would you ever, in fact, in fact never you would hear a prophet say, hey, uh, my father has spoken to share something with you, to me to share something with you. Um, you would never hear a prophet refer to God as my father. He would refer to God typically as like Hashem or Yahweh or the name of God or the title of God. But never would you hear a prophet in the Old Testament describe God or refer to God as a father or as a father-like figure. And this is really fascinating when you begin to think about this and consider this in the New Testament. There is radically a shift. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, the language that he uses, the way that he describes God, his the relationship that he identifies himself to God is absolutely fascinating. And it's unlike anybody else in the entire New Testament or in the entire Bible. Now, later on in the New Testament, you see writers and authors refer to God in these uh, extremely intimate ways, like father, like son type relationship. But for the most part, Jesus was the one that kind of launched that entire world upon our world scene to think about God in a whole new way. So this is, this is pro- profound. So Jesus literally... Uh, introduces to us a whole new way to think about God as Father. So I'll take a look at a couple of passages here. Um, so Matthew chapter 1, uh, look at three of these and we'll just kind of move on. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says this, or 11. When you pray, Jesus says, pray like this, our Father who's in heaven, 
as many of you probably know, you're already familiar with this because you've heard this uh, taught at some point before, but the word father there can uh, be translated as, as Abba, or is the actual word that's Abba. And it's an Aramaic word that's basically uh, baby talk for, for daddy. Uh, they would have, uh, the Hebrews would have a word Ab, A-B, which would indicate or be indicative of father, but Abba would be kind of another way of kind of gibberish, like a father, be like one of the one of the very first ways that a child would begin to communicate, one of the very first um, utterances of, of ideas and words coming together off of its lips would be this, this phrase, Abba. And uh, it's an extremely intimate and familiar type of a term. So when Jesus says, hey, when you pray, pray to God, say, our, our daddy, our Abba, our father. Uh, another way in which Jesus is shaping or introducing a whole new paradigm for thinking about who God is and imaging God or imagining God as a father. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, he says this, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my father in heaven. So Jesus uses language to uh, designate his relationship directly to uh, Yahweh. He says, he's my father. This is how close we are. He's my father. There's this intimate relationship. And if you're familiar at all with uh, first century um, uh, framework and sociological uh, construct, what you would have is an extremely patriarchal society. I realize, you know, we live in 2000, whatever year we live in. You get the idea that there's this, I, this concept that looking back over the Bible, there's this tendency to judge it or criticize it because it's, oh, it's so patriarchal. And the concept of patriarchy is such a, a hated on word in our modern day sociological construct. But again, this is just the way the Bible. So if you want to understand these concepts of the Bible, you've got to at least wrestle with it on the same level as the way the Bible writers would have written this. So the idea of a father, you've got to understand, that's, that's a description of someone who's at the top of the food chain within that family construct. And he has all of the honor. He has all this responsibility. Uh, he has a very, very high privileged position to take care of his children. Now, the point is that we'd make is that Jesus is... Uh, introducing language that describes God as this, this high-level, uh, loving, uh, intimate uh, uh, provider and protector over this entire family life. So he uses language like this. Last one, we'll kind of move on into the main meat of today. Matthew chapter 18, verse 14, he says, Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. So now Jesus uses the language to say that he's not just my Father, but he's also your Father. He's no doubt speaking to the people of Israel that had covenantal relationship with him. But the point of the matter is, is Jesus is wanting his hearers to think about God in a whole new light. I want you to just pause and think about this. Because for many of us, again, like I said earlier, going back to what I just introduced this entire uh, concept to you in, is that how do you think about God? When you think about God, if you were to stop and pause and maybe jot down your thoughts Somewhere to ask you, spell out, write down on a piece of paper how you think about God as Father. What would fill that paper?
technical stuff. Can you guys hear me okay? Let's crank it up really loud, okay? Really loud. Just kidding. So what we see in this Sermon on the Mount uh, teaching that Jesus gives, and again, keeping with this theme of God being Father, and within this context, he's basically saying, look, uh, there, there are these propensities that you and I have. We're, we all struggle with them. There are these anxieties that oftentimes take over and control and manipulate us. There are anxieties for where we're going to sleep, the idea of, of where am I going to live, uh, homelessness, will I have a home, will I have some place that I can call my own for a sense of safety. Uh, Jesus says what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. I mean, reality, are, are these not all the very same things that you and I struggle with and deal with in today's world? Not much has changed. So the question that we naturally wrestle with is where am I going to get my food? Where am I going to get my clothing? Where am I going to get my protection? And the answer in Scripture that Jesus comes on the scene and basically reinforces to his hearers is your heavenly Father cares for you, and he will be the one that will take care of you. Trust him is what Jesus' message was. Trust God. Trust Yahweh. He was like a father to you. He wants to carry you. He wants to help you and provide for you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11 goes on. It says, if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give you good, give you good things to those who ask of him? Now, again, I love this passage because what Jesus is basically saying is like tapping in the reality of humanity. And he's like, look, for the most part, most dudes are just evil people. We, are, we, 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 we do a good job at protecting and covering our brokenness. I mean, I don't think Jesus is necessarily coming down straight up with a foot down. But his point is that, look, you guys are all broken. You all have these misguided desires and uh, things that you want that are oftentimes out of sync with the deepest desires inside your heart. That You wrestle between your strongest desires versus your deepest desires and your strongest urges versus your deepest urges. Jesus is like, you guys, you men, you're evil. And yet even though you're broken and misguided and you have misplaced affections, you know how to give good gifts to your children. I mean, think about this. This is pretty profound. It's just kind of the way that Jesus uh, draws in this reality of humanism, humanity, I should say, into the fact that, look, even a bad guy knows how to take good care of his kid. And Jesus' whole point is, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is not bad, there is no shadow of darkness or duplicity or double-mindedness, or brokenness, or evil, or wickedness in your Heavenly Father. How much more will your Heavenly Father take care of you and give you good gifts? So I want you to just pause and think about this, because there's a tendency, I think, for us to think that God does not take a lot of delight in giving us good things. Now, again, this can be taken to a a far-out, abstract concept where that's all that God will ever give you is good things, prosperity, and so on and so forth. Uh, again, there are aberrations and there are ways in which things can be caricatured. But the fact of the matter is that oftentimes robs us from entering into the reality that we actually have a father, a heavenly father, that actually takes great delight in, in blessing his children. I don't know how you pray or how you think about God in this context or in, in this light. Do you feel like you have to constantly make bargains with God or barter with him? God, please, I'll read my Bible often. I'll go to church often. I'll even help out uh, at church. I'll do these things. If, God, you give me this, and we, we make these bargains with God, when in reality, can you imagine if you had a child and that was constantly doing that to you? At some point, a good father would be like, I feel like you're constantly trying to earn my love. Do you know I just love you? You don't need to earn it. You don't need to bargain with me. I just I want to do good things with you. You're my child. I take great delight in you. 
And this is what Jesus is trying to help his disciples to reimagine God like. God is a, a provider. God is one who provides. Okay, next slide. I want you to reimagine God is one who instructs and at the same time disciplines. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said this, I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. So what we see in this relationship with Jesus is that he's constantly being instructed. Now, this is kind of an interesting reality that Jesus himself is saying, look, I'm constantly uh, receiving downloads from the Father. He's instructing me. He's coaching me. He's guiding me. I'm going to him. I'm asking him. uh, I'm seeking him. This is kind of fascinating when you think about this. Jesus, Jesus, I mean, sinless Jesus, he himself is asking the Father to give him guidance and direction and as to what he should do for the day and so on. So Jesus says that he is looking to the Father to instruct him. So how much more, if Jesus needed instruction, how much more do, you know, just we have a need for some sort of guidance and counsel and coaching and whatnot. Uh, so we see that this is part of the nature of God. So Hebrews chapter 12, this is kind of a lengthy passage, so we'll just kind of read through it bit by bit, just listen to it. Uh, this is actually re- read out of the message, and I, I like the way he describes it here. So uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11 says this. My dear child, don't, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. Next slide. And he says, God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble that you're in isn't punishment. It's training. The normal experience of children. It's a normal experience of children. Sorry, period. <laughs> Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? Next slide. It says, while we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline is not much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely, for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. Think about this. Um, I remember when my kids were young, and there were, there were occasions that we lived in neighborhoods where there were also younger kids around. And, or we've been around kids. You go at the park, and you play, and you have kids running around. And some kids, sometimes, I look at those kids, and I'm thinking, mom and dad are literally doing nothing. This is kind of long before people, like, really constantly, you know, chronically uh, engaged with their cell phones. Uh, my kids were, were younger than that. But the fact of the matter is, there were occasions where in my mind, I'm like, I want so bad to go discipline that kid. Because kid's out of control. And it's really the mom and dad that's out of control because the mom and dad are not in any way engaged in what's happening with the kid. The kid is out of control. And I want to discipline that kid. It's that, but that's not my job. I'm not their parent. I'm not that kid's parent. As much as that inclination may be there to want to at least set some sort of standard so the kid can grow and mature, it's not my job. And I would never do that. It would be absolutely really creepy, uh, and I would probably be arrested if I did that because that's just how our society works. But the fact of the matter is God disciplines those who, he, who belong to him. There's one beautiful element about this. What this means if you have ever found yourself engaged with God's disciplinary hand There's one thing that that means alone. It means above and beyond all of the things that you are not an orphan. You're not lost. You're home. You have a father. He cares for you. He loves you. 
and he is working out something in your life that is ultimately good, ultimately good. And though, like what the writer of Hebrews says, even though there are occasions where it feels hard and challenging and difficult, but this is not God's punishment against you. This is God's gentle, kind-hearted, loving discipline and training and instruction so that we would grow to ultimately become more like him. This is what we see, that the fact that God disciplines should not be something that should cause you dismay or should cause you despair or should cause you to crumple, but in reality, in the midst of it, should cause you to just realize God is doing this because he loves me. He loves me. And look, I, I get it. This is one of the reasons why we need to be in community, why it's, we always emphasize this. Like, get involved in community. Find community. If you have, don't have community, uh, form community. Create community. Grab a handful of friends and say, let's get together in the morning, study scripture, read the Bible, read it out loud, and let's talk about it, let's pray for each other. Because oftentimes what I find it, we end up doing, we go through, when we have moments where we find ourselves in these moments of discipline, we lose heart. But that's where having other people around us can then reinforce to us, don't get dismayed, don't be bummed out. God is with you. He loves you. He hasn't abandoned you. You are going through this moment of difficulty because he loves you. It's because of God's love. And that's what we're told with regard to this. So I want you to reimagine not only a God who provides, but to reimagine a God who also instructs and disciplines. Thirdly, I want you to reimagine a God who comforts. There's all sorts of passages throughout the Old Testament as well as the New that describe God as this, this comforting God. And that's what a good father does. He comforts. Uh, that's what a, a father knows how to do or a mother knows how to do. They come along, and when they see a child going through a tough time, they comfort. I mean, that's instinctive. You don't have to, like, train someone. You don't have to take a class that's there to be like, how do I become more kind to a child? I mean, you can fine-tune that stuff. But, I mean, innately, there should be some level of desire to want to bring comfort to a child that's going through a tough time. In the same way with God, but with plus infinity, right? I mean, God's comfort is way beyond anything that we would in any way, shape, or form resemble the comfort of God. But God's is far more, infinitely greater than anything that we can even have. Psalm 34, verse 18 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. So again, think about that. Those who are brokenhearted or crushed in their spirit, they feel broken or ruined by the things of this world, by things that they have done, either sins you have committed or sins that have been committed against you. That's what it means to be broken in spirit or crushed. And to those people, it says that God actually draws near. He comes near to these people in these midst of challenges. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says this, a bruised reed in reference to uh, Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench but he will faithfully bring forth justice. It's a great passage. So if you think about it this way, a bruised reed, a reed was a, uh, uh, oftentimes something that was used for measuring, um, and it was, just think of like a big stick kind of a thing, and it's bruised, like it's bent over. Um, it, it says that Jesus is so gentle, so kind, so caring, uh, so careful with his people, that even those that are bruised, they feel kind of bent over, broken, uh, fragile, wounded. Those people... Jesus wouldn't walk by and break. I mean, have you ever walked by, uh, you know, a, a bush or seen a, like a little flower kind of wilted, and you're like, I'm just going to pluck it up because it looks like it's already dead. Well, maybe that's, that's me. Maybe it's bad. But the fact is God doesn't act like that. God actually sees something that's bent over or bruised or fragile and says, I want to help bring it back into some level of health. And same thing with a, a faintly burning wick. So think of a candle that's barely flickering, barely sputtering along. 
uh, that God doesn't walk by and just blow it out. In fact, what he does, he cups his hands around it to protect it from any wind and then begins to breathe life into it so that it becomes a flame again. This is the image of who God is. This is the picture of a God that brings comfort to those that are broken or weary or fragile or hurting. This is who God is. So I want you to reimagine God as one who is like a comfort, brings comfort. Next slide. Wrap it up with this and move on to the last one and be done. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. God is the source of all of our comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can be a comfort to others. When they are troubled, we, uh, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God gave us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Just think about that. This is a passage for some of you guys. There's God in some of you guys right now going through gnarly stuff in your life, things that you feel heavy under, you feel oppressed by, you feel pushed down by, you feel as if you're underneath this heavy burden, heavy load. I want you to listen to that, think about that, contemplate, meditate upon this reality. I love that final line. It says, for the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. So some way, there's like this equation going on in this passage that the more we suffer, the more God's grace, the more God's comfort meets us in the midst of that suffering. It's because God comforts. This is who God is. Reimagine this God who comforts. And finally, we'll wrap it up with this. Reimagine a God who is ultimately compassionate. And alongside this, part of his compassionate trait is that he restores. This is in a couple of ways in which this unfolds. In Psalm, uh, I'm going to read Second uh, Corinthians first, and we'll come back to that. Second uh, Corinthians 1, 3. I actually just read that, but the first part we'll read it. Uh, Praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, for uh, his, uh, for he is our compassionate Father, the source of all comfort. He's the source of all comfort. And then Psalm 103, verse 13 says this, The Lord is like a father to his children. He's tender and compassionate to those who fear him. And the idea that's basically being conveyed here is that God is like a father. And again, this, this analogy, this uh, analogous language to describe like a father who in that culture, his job was to protect and to uh, cover and to care for his children. Uh, and again, like I said, uh, that may not have been your experience. Your experience may have been the exact opposite. You may have had an abusive father or an absentee father or whatever reason that the idea of fatherhood is something that uh, like I said earlier, brings terror to your own heart. But the fact of the matter is, what I would hope for you to be able to see today is that what the scripture presents to us is a father, a God, who is not necessarily like your heavenly father, but, he's, but he is a father in that his, his aim, his goal is to protect and provide and oversee and to bring comfort and to demonstrate compassion. So again, he says, praise God, the father of our Lord Jesus, for his compassionate Father, the source of all comfort. And I was reading a, uh, a book on Psalms. It's a, it's a Hebrew book. It's actually not Christian, but um, written by uh, Jewish sages. And I love reading these uh, Psalms, and I love just kind of reading the stories that go along with it. And there's a, the, the way that they would tell these stories oftentimes, they were called Midrash. And Midrash is just another way of describing kind of like commentary. So just like Christians, we have like commentaries. You can go to a Christian bookstore and see this massive aisle of commentaries. Uh, the Jews also had the same thing. They were called midrash, and it was a way of unpacking or adding ideas and concepts to a, a passage. And they were these, uh, for the most part, oral stories that would be handed down from generation to generation. And I was reading this uh, one midrash in this 
uh, commentary or a side note that was part of this particular psalm. It's interesting because it says, uh, you know, David wrote this psalm, Psalm 103. It's an amazing psalm. It's a psalm of praise. And uh, in that little passage where it says that uh, uh, he's like a merciful father, um, there's this madrash around this guy by the name of Joab. Joab is kind of like um, um, David's, King David's, like commander-in-chief. He overseen all of his armies. So you'd imagine this guy's like a big, burly, uh, you know, weather-torn, uh, bruiser type of uh, uh, individual. And so he hears David uh, talk about this, and it actually says within this uh, madrash, it says that he heard this statement, and, it, and he was in, it was incredulous. In his mind, he was like, how in the world, David, could you compare God to a father and somehow say that God is merciful like a father? And in Joab's mind, he's like, how can you say that he's, that he's like a father, not like a mother? Because a mother has this overwhelming sense of compassion. Because wouldn't it be how we would typically think of compassion in the context of a mother? Um, and women are incredibly compassionate. I, I know as far as compassion goes in our family, my, my wife has the majority of that. Um, I have some, but she has the overwhelming majority. When I say some, maybe like a small percentage. She has the rest. But the point of the matter is, is that in this psalm, God is depicted as a father who has this overwhelming amount of compassion. So anyways, Job uh, then goes on and in this particular midrash. It says that then Joab goes out and he, uh, he wants to prove David wrong. So he goes and he finds his family. And this family has 12 kids in the family. He tracks down the father and uh, he goes up to the father. And again, it's going to be one of those crazy stories. So just bear with me. Again, it's like probably written from like 3,000 years ago. So um, another, another world to just, just deal with it. So Joab goes to the dad. He's like, hey, you're really poor. You don't have any money. You got 12 kids. Uh, looks like you can use some money. I want to buy one of your kids, and I'll give you a large sum of money. And the dad's like, no way. You're, you're an idiot. Get out of here. So he leaves. Joab goes back, finds the mother. And the mother's like, hey, you guys have no money. You have no food. You've got 12 miles to feed. Life looks really hard. But I'll give you a large sum of money if you sell me one of your kids. And she's like, all right. So she sells one of the kids, all right? So again, this is a story. Don't judge. Just listen. Just listen. Uh, just hold your remarks. And then it, it goes back, and then Joab comes back, or the uh, father, I should say, comes back that night, notices that the child's gone, asks what happened, where the child go. He's in absolute grief over the fact that one of his 12 children has been sold off, and he's just devastated by this. And so what the father does is he takes the money that the mother got, and he goes and tracks down Joab, and he finds Joab, and he says, look, here's the, the reality. Uh, I want my child back, and if you do not give me the child back, I'll give you the money back. If you do not give me your child back, I will fight you to the death, but I'll get my child back. And, and here's what it says at the very end. Um, Joab returned the child and admitted that David had been correct in his estimate that the fathers of the father's mercy for, listen, this is where it gets really powerful, for a father expends all of his energy, and even endangers his life in order to support his child because of a father's investment is so great and his love is so intense, so ferocious, so powerful, so unstoppable. And here's the beauty that this story stops and doesn't include, but I will. Because it's not until we see Jesus that we see the extent of God's love. Not just that he would consider taking upon himself pain, but he actually does take upon himself pain. And it's not until Jesus we see the extent, the depth, the breadth to which God would go to take upon himself pain and suffering 
and sorrow and grief so that you and I who are constantly falling underneath the weightiness of that pain, suffering, sorrow, and grief can instead be given life. And this is what we see with God. We have a father. So again, like I said, I don't know how you think about God as father or what pictures come to your mind. But my hope is, this is why we turn to the scripture, is that the scripture reinforms our understanding. It creates a world of possibilities for us to reimagine a God that's unlike anything else we've ever dreamed of or read about in mythology or thought about by way of our own personal experiences, but to reimagine a God from Scripture that has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet broken and sinners and in rebellion, like a child that was the prodigal son, yet a far way off God himself, like a father runs after that child, throws off all dignity and honor and respectability in order to seek and save and welcome back those who have turned. So, this is an opportunity to just respond to God. I was listening to a podcast this past week, and I love the way it described um, how often as we come to the Bible, we read the Bible with a very specific aim in mind. The aim that we oftentimes approach the Bible with is, what is in the Bible for me? So we say things like this. We want to immediately jump into what we would call application. Um, And so oftentimes the way that we uh, rate our Bible reading, right? So maybe this is you. Maybe this is your experience. Maybe this is the way you've been this past week. You read the Bible, and uh, there's no, like, heavy-duty takeaways. In other words, the application seems a little bit um, scarce or difficult. Or how do you make application if you're in the middle of the book of Judges where everybody's slaughtering everyone and killing everyone? It's bloody. It's horrible. These vicious cycles of violence. Um, How do you get application out of that? Um, but this passage uh, in this podcast, he ends with basically saying, look, the reality is not so much that we should be looking for application, but response. And he says there's a difference between application and response. The idea of response is to simply say, what is Scripture expecting by way of a response from me? That's bigger than just application. Response sometimes involves repentance. Response sometimes involves Casting my cares before this God because he cares for me. Response sometimes involves worshiping. Response sometimes involves selling some of my goods that I'm holding on tightly to and being able to give it away to the poor so I can then be free from those things that bind me. Response looks like a lot of things. So the question is, what is this truth, this, this theme, this reality of if we were to enter into the text or allow the text to perhaps even better think of it this way, to enter into you? What response would it elicit from you if God truly is this father that cares for us and comforts us and instructs us and guides us and is compassionate to our circumstances? What type of response does that call us to? I I would suggest it calls us to one of worship and love and affection and honor back to him. So that's what I encourage you to do, to think about your heart, to enter into the story, to allow the story of Scripture to enter into you and reshape how you think about God as Father. Hopefully this was helpful. Why don't we all stand, and uh, we'll wrap it up. I'll have uh, worship come on up, and we'll sing a couple songs in response to God. Let me pray. And as we uh, gather and worship, we, as is common, we partake of communion. And communion is a way of reminding ourselves of the depth of the love of God for us. How much does God love us? Uh, The communion 
the Lord's Supper is a way of reminding us that he himself bore our, 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 uh, our shame, our sin, our brokenness. And he himself was broken for us so that we who are broken could be made whole. As we partake of the cup and, drink, uh, and, and uh, drink the cup and eat the bread and are reminded of the depth of God's love, um, worship him, respond to him rightly. So let me pray. Let's sing. God, thank you for your great love for us and let your word reshape our understanding and help us to reimagine who you are, truly are. God, not how we either want to think you to be or how our minds have been shaped by our past or false notions. But God, I pray that you would allow the scripture to speak truth into us, to reshape how we understand who you are. So we respond in love and worship to you. Thank you.